Will you walk into my parlor, said a spider to a fly. Tis the prettiest little parlor that ever you did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I have many pretty things to show when you are there. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, to ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can ne'er come down again. English poet Mary Hewitt wrote that in 1829, the first part of her poem, The Spider and the Fly. She meant it as a warning not to be too trusting of people who use flattery to gain your trust. However, I can't help but think of the alien abduction phenomenon when I hear those lines. People are being taken by aliens against their will and experimented upon. Maybe aliens are even breeding with them, according to ufologist Bud Hopkins, and most recently, Yong Hae Chi, a Korean professor at Oxford. Then the abductees have their memories wiped, but the trauma of the experience lives on, making ordinary life for them difficult, if not impossible. This is a common notion today, but where did it all start? American sources, no surprise, say it all started in America, with the 1961 abduction of Barney and Betty Hill. But actually, there are cases before that as well. As the lines between news media and the entertainment industry blur and continue to blur, it's becoming harder and harder for some people to differentiate between something that actually happened and something that might have happened. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain... That's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Walk into my parlor. Early Early UFO UFO abductions. abductions. The whole alien encounters thing really took off after World War II in the late 40s and all through the 50s. Some say this is because advances in radar technology allowed us to see more of them, they'd always been there, and that we had invented the atomic bomb, which got our off-world visitors quite curious about us. Aliens nabbing humans have become something of a common theme in science fiction and adventure tales, and also in the comics. For example, in 1946, Planet Comics had a very popular comic strip of a UFO using a tractor beam of light to make off with a well-endowed woman. They named her Specimen 9 and told her that she was being taken as part of something they called Project Survival before taking her back to their home near Saturn. This humans-used-for-breeding-purposes trope would appear again and again in subsequent years. Paleo-abductions. Claims that happened before the end of the war are called paleo-abductions by UFO researcher Jerome Clark. Some were near misses, while others involved people actually being taken. Here are just a few. In 1897, the Daily Mail, which is a newspaper from Stockton, California, not the tabloid in the UK, published the tale of Colonel H.G. Shaw, 
who claimed that three very thin, hairy aliens tried to kidnap him and a friend, but the pair of them managed to fight them off. In 1951, a man named Fred Regan, or Reagan, said that he was flying his private plane when a UFO hit it. The alien pilots, who looked kind of like asparagus made out of metal, apologized, then told him that he had cancer and they tried to cure him, but they failed, and he died of brain cancer shortly after this supposed encounter. The actual earliest known abduction survivor report describes events that took place in 1921, even though they were not reported until an article came out in the magazine Paris Match in 1954. The anonymous writer of the story said that he was kidnapped by two tall men wearing what seemed to him at the time like diving suits and diving helmets. They put him in a, quote, oddly shaped tank for a while, and then they let him go. In 1955, two people who had claimed to have been contacted by aliens several times in the past, Carl Hunrath and Wilbur Wilkinson, just disappeared, never to be heard from again. And in 1958, two U.S. Army soldiers saw two red lights in the sky near their military base, felt a weird disassociated feeling, and then came to in a totally different location with no memory as to how they had got there. UFOs were certainly becoming interesting to the press and the public, thanks in part to Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting, the Mantell Incident of 1948, where a pilot died chasing a UFO, the Child's Witted UFO encounter that same year, and the Gorman UFO dogfight. All of these are detailed in a previous episode. The UK had also seen its share of sightings in the 1940s, and so had other countries, but most of them seemed to happen in the United States. But the first real alien abduction case to get lots of attention comes out of Brazil in 1957. AVB On October 16, 1957, near São Francisco de Salas in southern Brazil, farmer Antonio Villas Boas was working at night because it was too hot during the day. He saw a red star in the sky, which then came closer and resolved itself into an egg-shaped craft of some sort with a red light on it and a top that rotated. It extended three legs and landed in his field. Needless to say, the 23-year-old farmer decided to hightail it out of there on his tractor, but the engine died, so he jumped off and legged it. From behind, a five-foot-tall humanoid creature with tiny blue eyes wearing gray overalls and some kind of a helmet grabbed him. Fast little bugger. It tried to talk to him, but its speech sounded kind of like a dog barking and yelping. Three more similar creatures came over, and the four of them wrestled Boas to the ground and then dragged him back to their vehicle. Inside, they removed all of his clothing and covered him in a thick gel. It was then pushed through a doorway covered in strange red symbols into a semicircular room. Here, they took blood samples from his chin, then sent him into another room where they pumped in some sort of a gas, which made him feel very ill. Then another humanoid came in, a quite attractive female who was also naked. Like the others, she was about five feet tall, had small blue cat-like eyes, and a strangely small overly pointed chin. She also had long platinum blonde or maybe even white hair on her head, but the hair under her armpits and on her pubis was bright red. She was quite fetching, said Boas, and they had sex. He did note that she did not kiss like we do, but nipped at his chin with her teeth instead, but otherwise, no real complaints. After they were finished, she rubbed her stomach, smiled at him, and then pointed up. He took this to mean that she was going to become pregnant from their encounter, and his child would be leaving the earth. Now, this kind of pissed him off. 
The little beings gave him back his clothes, and then they showed him around the ship. He tried to steal an object that looked something like a clock, so he'd have proof of this when he went home, but they noticed and they stopped him. They led him outside and then took off, the craft glowing with light. He later figured out that he'd been inside for four hours. Afterwards, he felt unwell. Nausea, headaches, burning eyes, small hard bumps on his skin, and a general feeling of weakness. A little while later, he saw an ad in a newspaper from a journalist named Jose Martins who was looking for people who had seen UFOs. They met, and Martins listened to Boas's incredible tale and then got in touch with Dr. Olavo Fontes in the National School of Medicine. Dr. Fontes examined Boas and said it looked very much like he had been exposed to a rather large amount of radiation. Sometime after this, Boas quit farming and became a lawyer and got married and raised a family. Researchers note that in November 1957, a month after the events Boas claimed happened to him, but before he contacted the journalist, the magazine O Ruggiero had published a short story that was eerily similar to the one that Boas was peddling. So maybe he read that and then contacted the journalist and backdated his story. Others said, no, 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 he was a farmer, he was illiterate, he couldn't possibly have read that story. Other people, countering that argument, said, well, he had a tractor, so he was already pretty well off by Brazilian farmer standards, and he did eventually become a lawyer, so really, he's a middle-class guy and almost certainly could read. Supporters of his story then changed their tactics, saying, well, he was far too normal and too middle-class to make up such a weird and embarrassing tale. After all, the emasculating nature of the whole sexual encounter with the small woman with the two colors of hair would have been rather shameful to a Brazilian man in the 50s. He's come to be known by his initials, AVB, in UFO circles, and he lived until 1991. For his entire life, he maintained that his story was true. The Hill, the Hill abduction. abduction. The AVB incident was big news in Brazil at the time, but it's really an encounter in 1961 in New Hampshire, in the United States, that really kicked off abduction fever. African-American civil rights leader and post office worker Barney Hill Jr. and his wife, a Caucasian social worker and civil rights activist named Betty Hill, were driving in their 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air back home from a holiday in Montreal and Niagara Falls on the night of September 19, 1961 with their dog, Delcy. About 150 miles shy of their destination, which was their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, they just passed the town of Lancaster and were on Route 3 when Betty noticed what looked like a meteor up in the sky near the moon, but instead of falling down, it was going up. It then started moving around the sky in a weird kind of spastic way. Very unusual behavior for a meteor. They drove another 20 miles or so and then pulled off at a rest stop just outside the very small unincorporated town of Twin Mountain to stretch their legs and walk Delcy the dog. Plus, Betty wanted to get a better look at what the heck that thing was up in the sky, so she got out her binoculars and took a better look. She saw that the light, which at that moment was moving across the moon, was an odd craft of some sort covered in lights of several different colors. She immediately thought, wow, this is a flying saucer. Her sister said that she'd seen one years before and she talked about it all the time and now Betty was getting to see one for herself. Barney took a look and thought it was just a passenger plane, but then he saw it change direction and start coming towards them without going through a turn first. It just suddenly changed direction. 
Later, he would say, this object that was a plane was not a plane. They got back in the car and continued driving south, but now the object seemed to be following them. They saw it fly over a restaurant up on Cannon Mountain, and again, right by the old man in the mountain, which is a 40-foot-tall, 25-foot-wide granite outcropping that looked kind of like a face until it collapsed in 2003. This was near the town of Franconia. The object came down near the old man in the mountain and was bigger than the outcropping, about 60 feet long, and the whole craft was rotating. It was also, again, moving in this weird way, almost like it was bouncing around in the sky instead of flying gracefully and smoothly like aircraft do like it didn't need forward momentum in order to stay aloft. They drove on for another five miles or so, and they just passed Indian Head when the object came down towards them very quickly, hovering about 80 feet off the road directly in front of them, which caused them to have to stop the car. The craft was totally silent, a kind of a flattened disc, something like a huge pancake, Barney later recalled. Now, Barney felt like he was kind of in good shape since he had a pistol in his pocket. After all, we're talking about an interracial couple in New Hampshire in the early 60s. They probably were more than a little bit used to having some troubles. So he got out of the car and walked towards it. He had the binoculars so he could get a better look, and he said he saw a number of human-shaped creatures wearing black, shiny uniforms and black military-style caps looking out the windows of the craft at him. All but one of them suddenly moved off together, sort of in unison. The one who stayed behind somehow managed to communicate with Barney across the distance, telling him to stay where he was and to keep looking at it. Fins of some sort with red lights on them extended from the craft and a smaller craft came out of the bottom. This smaller vehicle was also totally silent and came closer. When it was about 300 feet away, hovering about 60 feet or so off the ground, he ran back to the car and took off. After a few minutes of high-speed driving, Betty rolled down the window to see if they managed to escape, and they both immediately heard a buzzing noise. The car started vibrating, and they felt rhythmic pulses traveling through their bodies. Things got very fuzzy in their minds. Then the buzzing vibrations happened again, and their minds cleared. However, apparently... In what seemed like only a moment, they had managed to drive 35 miles with only very spotty memories of what had happened to them while they'd covered that distance. They seemed to remember turning at one point into the woods and coming across some kind of a roadblock of some sort and seeing a bright red orb hovering above the ground. And maybe there were some people there and maybe there weren't. They continued on their way back to Portsmouth and got home right about sunrise, having driven through the night. When they got home, they were still a bit fuzzy-headed. The binocular strap was broken, though neither of them could remember how that had happened. The toes of Barney's shoes, which were his nice dress shoes, were all scuffed up. Betty's dress was in really bad shape. The zipper, hem, and the lining were all torn. Her dress was also covered in a weird pink powder, which later blew away when she hung it outside on a clothesline. And neither of their watches worked, nor would they ever work again. When they went inside their house, Betty had a strange compulsion to leave their luggage by the back door instead of putting everything away. And Barney had a really strange compulsion to inspect his genitals. He did and found nothing amiss. They then both took long showers and fell into a deep sleep. The next day, they noticed the trunk of the car had these shiny concentric circles all over it. And the circles seemed to be magnetized. When Barney went near them with a compass, the needle would spin around and around and around, but then stop when they moved it away from the circles. Now, why they had a compass near the trunk of their car, I can't tell you. 
Private Investigations. Two days later, Betty called nearby Pease Air National Guard base to report what they had experienced. The memories just weren't going away and they were weird. She only told them a little bit of what had happened while she was talking to him on the phone because she didn't want to sound like a kook. The next day, Major Paul Henderson did a follow-up call and got more details. His conclusion was that they'd probably seen the planet Jupiter and gotten confused, though the report that he wrote up would later be amended to say that there was a, quote, optical condition. Then it was later amended again to say that there was an inversion. And then even after that, it was amended another time with the phrase insufficient data. The report was sent on to Project Blue Book, which was at the time headed by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Friend. And the program was suffering from a mismatch between his desire to correctly investigate UFO claims like they had at the beginning of Blue Book and those who wanted to bury all such reports. So not a lot got done. Betty went to the library and got a book about UFOs by Donald Kehoe, a Marine Naval aviator who'd written a number of UFO books. He was also the head of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, the largest civilian research group examining UFO claims. About a week after their strange encounter on the back roads of New Hampshire, she wrote Kehoe a letter about what had happened to them and what they'd seen or maybe seen. I mean, things were still muddy, and so nothing was really clear, and she and Barney were thinking that maybe hypnosis might be a good way to recover their incomplete memories. What did he think? A few days after that, so about 10 days after the incident, Betty had a series of very vivid dreams for five nights in a row. In one, a group of men surrounded their car at a roadblock, all of them re- really rather short, about five, five foot four, with black hair, large noses, blue lips, and gray skin, but otherwise human looking. They were all wearing blue uniforms and military style caps. Then she lost consciousness while being forced to walk through the forest. She looked over at Barney, but he seemed to be almost like in a trance, like he was sleepwalking. Other dreams she had on these nights repeated some of these details and added new ones. They're walking up a ramp into a metal disc-shaped craft and then separated. When she complained about being separated from her husband, a man that she thought of as the leader told her that they needed to be examined separately or the whole process would just take too long. This seemed like a reasonable explanation. She was led into a room where she and the leader were joined by another man whom she thought of as the examiner. The examiner was very nice, calm, and soft-spoken. Both men spoke English, though the examiner seemed to be having kind of a hard time with the language, some kind of a weird, thick accent, and she had a very hard time understanding most of what he was trying to say. But he was nice. She sat in a chair, and the examiner cut off a little bit of her hair, looked in her eyes, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He took fingernail clippings. He used a kind of dull letter opener-like object to scrape skin from her legs and feet onto some sort of a clear plastic-looking film like cellophane. He said he needed to test her nervous system and then pushed a needle into her belly button, which hurt a lot. She cried out, but then the leader guy waved his hands in front of her face and the pain went away. The examiner left the room with his samples and then Betty and the leader chatted for a while. He showed her a book with odd symbols on it and said that she could keep it. She asked where they were from and he pulled down a star map. Then while she and Barney were leaving the ship after their examinations were finished, an argument broke out among the men in the craft. The leader then came to her and took back the book that he'd given her, telling her that it had been decided that she and Barney should forget what had happened to them. However, he kind of whispered to her, the memories will almost certainly return in time. The couple was then put back in their car, told to wait until the craft had left, and then continued their drive home. UFO writer Donald Kehoe 
gave the letter Betty had written him to a fellow NICAP member and astronomer, Walter Webb from Boston, who drove the 60 miles north to Portsmouth to talk to them face-to-face on October 21st. They told him everything that they could remember, and Barney said it felt like there were things that had happened that maybe his mind was trying to block out. Webb talked to them for six hours and left believing them. More NICAP people came to interview the Hills on October 25th, this time Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson. These two particularly noted the so-called missing time, that's a term that the ufologists use, during their drive back. They had a buzzing, and then hours had passed, and they traveled 35 miles. Betty once again suggested that maybe hypnosis would be a way to get their memories back, but Barney was still very skeptical. Barney and Betty started driving out at weekends to different parts of the White Mountains where they thought that maybe this had happened, but they could not find the exact spot that they both hazily remembered seeing a bright red globe hovering over. In November the next year, 1962, an Air Force captain named Ben Sweat came to their church to speak about hypnosis. The Hills talked to him afterwards and told him about the odd events of the previous year and asked if he would be willing to hypnotize them in order to help them get their memories back. He said that they should go to a professional and not an amateur like him. Going Going public public and going going under. under. So on March 3rd, 1963, the Hills decided to tell some members of their church about what had happened to them back in September of 61. Barney had been seeing a psychiatrist he liked who suggested that they try Benjamin Simon in Boston if they were serious about trying hypnosis. They spoke to the two-state UFO group, a collection of citizens interested in UFOs in early November 1963, and then met Benjamin Simon in mid-December. He talked to them and noticed that while Barney tried to act like the whole thing wasn't really that big a deal, he clearly was quite anxious about it. He thought that maybe they really had seen some sort of an unusual craft, but he thought it was with humans in it, not aliens. He agreed to start hypnotherapy sessions starting on January 4th, 1964, almost two and a half years after their roadside encounter. During his sessions, Barney became quite agitated and emotional, saying that he kept his eyes closed for most of it because he had been so afraid. But he did remember some details like that the binocular strap had broken as he was running back to the car, that he'd been driving like a bat out of hell when suddenly he felt compelled to drive into the woods where they encountered a roadblock with six men at it. Three of the men walked up to the car. One of them told him not to be afraid and to close his eyes. He described the man as pretty much the same as the ones from Betty's dream. Blue lips, gray skin, blue uniforms adding that they stared into his eyes an awful lot and almost seemed to be sort of mesmerizing him in some way. While under hypnosis, he kept talking about the eyes, the eyes, their eyes somehow coming closer to his eyes, pushing into his brain. His examination in the craft, after he'd been separated from Betty, took place on a table, not a chair. They scraped some skin samples off him as well, and they took a sperm sample using a cup-shaped device over his genitals. They just extracted it. There was no orgasm or anything like that. He then said a thin tube was pushed up his anus for just a moment and then very quickly removed. And then someone he couldn't see counted his vertebrae, presumably by touch, because otherwise how would he have known? He said he didn't speak to any of the people in there, but he could hear them mumbling to each other in some kind of unknown language. And yet, it seemed like he could understand them through something that he thought of as thought transference, because Barney did not know the word telepathy. 
Betty's hypnosis sessions described events similar to the ones that she'd had in those dreams, though some of the details were different and sometimes the order of events was different. She was also highly emotional during her sessions and more than once Simon had to stop because she was openly weeping. Her accounts squared enough with Barney's that Simon thought that they probably were both describing the same events. He asked her if she could draw the star map that she'd seen from the leader, and she said it wasn't really a map, it was something more like a, well, today we call it a 3D hologram projection, but she used other words to describe what she thought she'd seen. She couldn't remember the whole thing, but she could remember 12 large stars and three fainter ones connected by lines, some lines solid, some lines dotted, forming a kind of a triangle shape with all the lines mainly emanating from one large star down in the lower right corner of the map. She said the leader had told her that the solid lines were trade routes and the dotted lines went to stars that were visited less frequently. After the sessions were over, Simon wrote down in his notes that he thought Betty had had these five nights of very weird, vivid dreams and then Barney had somehow developed a sympathetic fantasy to jibe with her. They were a great couple and they were very much sort of in sync mentally and emotionally. And yes, even though there were some discrepancies between their accounts, Betty said that the men had no hair at all, though they did in her dreams, while Barney said that they did have hair. She said they were all wearing gray jackets with zippers and pants, but he said they all had black shiny uniforms with peaked caps that looked kind of like the ones that Nazi officers wear in movies. She said they had large, almost comically bulbous noses. She referenced Jimmy Durante, but then she later changed it to smaller noses. Anyway, Barney didn't like this explanation that his wife had a bunch of dreams and then he, his mind made up a bunch of stuff so they'd be in sync. He pointed out that in the parts where they're separated, they both remembered totally different things. He slowly started coming around to the idea that maybe they really had been taken aboard an alien spacecraft, though he never really got as comfortable with that notion as his wife did. She seemed to just accept it. After the therapy sessions, both Barney and Betty's anxiety over the events that had occurred in September 1961 seemed to disappear. Simon wrote it all up for the journal Psychiatric Opinion, saying he thought it was a unique case of psychological aberration. And that would seem to be that. The Hills mentioned their encounters to friends and family from time to time and continued making trips to the White Mountains to try and find the spot they'd seen that red orb eventually finding what they thought of as the capture site in September of 1965. New Hampshire State Historical Marker number 224 now marks that spot. A reporter apparently had been given tapes of the Hills talking about their encounter back in 1963 and then found out they'd done hypnosis to recover memories and managed to somehow get some of those notes as well as notes from some of the UFO investigators that would come and talk to them from time to time. He mixed it all up together into an article that he published in the Boston Evening Traveler on October 25th, 1965 titled, UFO Chiller, Did They Seize Couple? They being capitalized. The United Press picked it up and syndicated the story nationwide and suddenly the Hills, who had never sought the limelight, who had only talked about it to people who were genuinely interested or were close to them, suddenly were national and soon international news. The next year, a newspaper man named John Fuller got them to agree to a series of interviews that he turned into the book, The Interrupted Journey, Two Lost Hours, quote, Aboard a Flying Saucer, which became a bestseller. Look Magazine printed excerpts from this, which helped fuel its popularity. This book included a drawing of the star map Betty had made during her hypno sessions. 
In December 1966, Barney Hill appeared on the popular TV show To Tell the Truth. This would be the only widespread public appearance he would ever make. Barney died of a cerebral hemorrhage in February 1969, age 46. Betty lived until 2004 when she was 85 years old and she never took a second husband. She became something of a celebrity in UFO circles and firmly believed that she and her husband had in fact been taken aboard an alien spacecraft. She maintained this to her dying day and over the years claimed to have seen UFOs on several occasions. She even wrote a book in 1995, self-published, called A Common Sense Approach to UFOs, which had all sorts of oddball claims like seeing a semi-truck levitating. She was certainly greatly affected by whatever happened to her or whatever she thinks happened to her and her husband that night in 1961. Three years after the book, The Interrupted Journey, was published, a school teacher and amateur astronomer in Oak Harbor, Ohio, named Marjorie Fish, read the book and became particularly interested in Betty's star map drawing. Assuming that one of the stars in there was our own son, Saul, she spent several years poring over star catalogs and making a 3D model of nearby star systems in her home using beads and string. She finally decided that the big star in the lower right corner that all the lines were coming from had to be Zeta Reticuli, a binary star system about 39.3 light years from Earth that contains two stars quite similar to our own. Ms. Fish sent her ideas to the editor of Astronomy Magazine, a well-regarded journal. They didn't usually publish submissions from the general public and amateurs, but at the time they were preparing for a December issue about the UFO debate, and they were including non-professional opinions for the very first time in their history. They included Fish's labeled map. For a year, debate raged in the pages of Astronomy Magazine about this map. They would later regret having published it, and many people who worked at the magazine referred to it as the Zeta Ridiculi Affair. Carl Sagan thought it was hooey, devoting part of an episode of Cosmos to demonstrating how it just does not line up with anything that we can actually observe in the sky. Over the years, as science has gathered more data about this region of the night sky, it looks more and more like Fish was totally, totally wrong. But she's a reasonable person and later publicly recanted her theory based on the new information and evidence available. But it didn't matter. The press ran several stories about the debate, which further publicized the Hill's encounter and pushed the Zeta Reticuli angle so much that sometimes the whole event is known as the Zeta Reticuli incident. Ripples, Ripples in, in the, the Pond, pond. On October 20th, 1975, NBC aired The UFO Incident, a made-for-TV movie about the Hills' claims starring James Earl Jones and Oscar-winning actress Estelle Parsons as The Hills. Two weeks later, a forestry worker named Travis Walton disappeared for five days while working in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest in Arizona. When he was finally found, he claimed he'd been abducted by a UFO and examined by three short, bald, humanoid creatures whom he tried to fight until they put a plastic mask over his face and he lost consciousness. When he came to, he was walking along a road five days later and the flying saucer was speeding off into the distance in the sky above him. He had no memory of time passing. He said that six of his co-workers had also seen the UFO and that they had run off when they saw Walton hit by a bright beam of light. These men later took polygraph tests and all but one of them passed. The guy that didn't pass had an inconclusive conclusion. 
After they passed the lie detector test, the National Enquirer gave them $5,000 for what they called the best UFO case of the year. Skeptics thought it was a hoax, noting several discrepancies in the eyewitness accounts. Other people thought that the NBC movie about the Hills two weeks earlier had influenced Travis, who either was then inspired to make up his own tale of alien abduction, or maybe he suffered some kind of a mental break. Walden would go on to become another UFO celebrity, sponsoring his own UFO conference in Arizona called the Skyfire Summit, among other things. A version of Walton's account formed the foundation for the 1993 film Fire in the Sky, but I say version because the producers thought Walton's story was a little too disjointed and not very interesting, and so they wanted to add in all sorts of extras to kind of jazz it up, like cocoons covered in membranes, uh, a gel being forced down his throat, and a probe shoved into his eyes, things like that. I have to say, I saw the movie when it first came out, and it was actually a pretty good film, but is not really even close to what Walton described happening to him. NBC would return to the Hills story in two episodes of the 1996 TV series Dark Skies, which survived only one season but involved a massive mega conspiracy about aliens called the Hive, who were secretly invading Earth by taking over human bodies. The story of Barney and Betty Hill continues to fascinate some people while it makes others scoff. To be fair though, almost no one thinks that they were hoaxers. Skeptics think that maybe something else was just going on psychologically, like maybe living day to day with the undue stress of being an interracial couple in America in the early 60s had taken its toll. Or maybe Barney, some people said, had seen a February 1964 episode of the science fiction TV show The Outer Limits called The Bolero Shield, which was kind of a science fiction take on Shakespeare's Macbeth, that it aired two weeks before his first hypnosis session, and maybe that influenced his mind. Though, Betty later claimed that she and Barney had never heard of the show Outer Limits, and they had talked about these events way before their hypnosis sessions. Or maybe they'd seen the 1953 film Invaders from Mars, and that somehow influenced both of them. Or, a lot of people think, maybe they were just sleep-deprived after driving so long and mistook an aircraft beacon that was up on top of Cannon Mountain for something else, and then sort of wake-dreamed the rest. One person said it was a classic case for not driving while fatigued. Still others say that maybe it's a case of recovered memories under hypnosis. When someone is under hypnosis, they can very easily create or be led to create or manufacture false memories, which they then will totally believe are real ones after the trance is over. The most recent roundup of the case, including all of the background history plus interviews with Betty's niece, is the 2007 book called Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction. That title just shows classic Americentricism since AVB was Brazilian and his thing happened three years before the Hills incident. The Barney and Betty Hill case and the AVB case lay the foundation for a lot of the trappings of modern UFO abduction stories. Missing time, bizarre medical examinations, a little bit of weird butt stuff, some sex stuff, star maps, gray aliens known now in UFO circles as Zeta Reticulans. That look for them was really popularized in the 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the Zeta Reticulans, or the greys, as they're even more commonly known, would go on to become the most commonly reported type of alien encountered, though there are variations. 
The Hill case also involves subsequent dreams, which may or may not be repressed memories, and the use of hypnosis to either recover those memories or to manufacture them in what is known as false memory syndrome. You are getting sleepy. You can't really talk about alien abductions without talking about Bud Hopkins, a man who would become known as the father of the alien abduction movement. Artist Bud Hopkins became interested in UFOs after he saw one in 1964 during the day near Cape Cod in Massachusetts. He contacted nearby Otis Air National Guard Base, but they kind of brushed it off and that kind of annoyed him. So he started thinking maybe they're brushing me off because they're trying to hide something. Hopkins started reading books about UFOs and especially about people who claimed that they had been contacted or abducted and he joined the research group NICAP. In 1975, a man in New Jersey named George Obarski got in touch with Hopkins and told him that he had seen a craft come out of the sky, land in North Hudson Park in North Bergen, New Jersey, and two aliens had come out, taken soil samples, gotten back in, and flown away. Hopkins and two higher-ups at MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, looked into it, and then Hopkins wrote about it for the Village Voice in an article titled, Sane Citizen Sees UFO, and that title really says a lot about the state of the art at the time. He was talking to people who said they'd seen something or that they'd been taken. He was hearing a lot of similarities between their stories, leading him to think that maybe there really was something to all this. And these people all suffered from psychological difficulties afterwards. And then there was this social stigma, this idea that, well, they're just kooks or weirdos or liars or fakers or scammers. And yet, people had a whole range of emotional responses. Yeah, sometimes awe of the technology they saw, and even a feeling of kind of affinity with their abductors. I mean, Betty Hill sure seemed to have a pretty pleasant conversation after her medical examination with her aliens. Mainly, abductees were exhibiting anxiety, feelings of helplessness, and even anger. Hopkins got hundreds of letters from abductees and started thinking that the aliens maybe just didn't understand humans, or they were, as he put it, quote, a callous, indifferent, amoral race bent solely upon gratifying its own scientific needs at whatever cost to us. He wrote that in 1987 in an article titled Ethical Implications of the UFO Abduction Phenomenon. He would later go on to say that he thought that the aliens were having trouble reproducing. He uses the term recreating, but I think he meant like reproducing or procreating. He thought it was entirely possible that A, aliens are real, and B, that they are total jerks. This idea of aliens using Earth as a sort of cosmic stud farm goes all the way back to that 1946 Planet comic strip and AVB's 1957 claims of the short but sexy woman with two different colors of hair. Hopkins thought it almost sounded like rape and that the abductees were victims traumatized by what had happened to them and then discarded by society, dismissed as lunatics. But for all his talk of the abductees and what was happening to them, he thought really it was all about the aliens. Among other things, he would end up in his career cataloging a whole list of supposed evidence of alien abductions. It's a way too long a list to go into, and we'll probably revisit that in some future episode. When a supposed abductee would start to remember actual abuse, 
usually from a family member, Hopkins would steer them towards an explanation that involved aliens instead, saying, no, 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 these memories you have of Uncle Phil or whoever it is, these are just your mind's way of trying to process what really happened to you, to reframe the events in a more familiar context. He really started to push the idea of using hypnosis to, quote, recover memories. And as I've said, that is a dangerous ride to take and can often lead to the implanting of false memories, especially if the hypnotist or the person leading the session, like Mr. Hopkins, have an agenda and are trying to prove a predetermined outcome. Hopkins later started thinking that women were being impregnated by the aliens and maybe even giving birth to alien-human hybrids, which were then removed from the host human in another abduction to be given to alien parents to raise. He also started noticing that once a person had been abducted once, they very often would be abducted again and again and again. Of course, plenty of other hypnotists, always at the fringes of medicine anyway, started jumping on the alien abduction bandwagon, offering their services for a fee to help people, quote, recover these terrible memories of alien experimentation and violation. Critics of Bud Hopkins, and there were plenty of them, said he was an alarmist, misinterpreting some very real-world things that happened to people on occasion, sometimes actual abuse, and sometimes physiological things like sleep paralysis. It's estimated that 5% of the human populace suffers from it regularly or on multiple occasions. When we sleep, the body floods with chemicals that prevent us from moving around while we dream. The brain is active during REM sleep, exactly like it is when we're awake. And without this chemical paralysis, we would move around and hurt ourselves while dreaming. When we wake up, other chemicals counteract the paralytic ones and we can move again. Except sometimes we wake up and those antiparalytic chemicals don't get released and we remain paralyzed. This can be a super scary feeling and could also happen while a person is still dreaming. So think about it. You can't move. You think you're awake, but you're actually dreaming, which means you're hallucinating. People who have had this happen report hearing sounds, buzzing, humming, snapping, hissing sounds, voices and whispers. They report feeling pressure on their heads and chest, feelings of fear and helplessness, seeing strange figures and entities, a feeling of floating through the air, and so on. These are all classic things from many UFO abduction stories, and not unlike Barney Hill's experiences as he recounted them, even under hypnosis. We also think the midbrain may still be active during sleep paralysis, causing what's known as threat hypervigilance, which increases people's heart rate and fear. Hopkins, however, dismissed the idea that sleep paralysis could explain any of these alien abduction tales, calling it, quote, the big explanation du jour in an interview on Larry King in 2005. Nope, it's all aliens, he said, always, all the time. Even if you think it isn't aliens, it is aliens. Even if there's no physical evidence that it's aliens, it's aliens. Even if you have evidence that it isn't aliens, it's aliens. Bud helped create a poll in 1991 just to see how many Americans might have been abducted. People who've looked at it later said it was a very poorly constructed poll, but the result was that, according to this poll, something like 350 people every day are abducted by aliens in the United States. That's almost 128,000 a year, which just seems more than a little bit unlikely. However, if you're making a career out of interviewing people and, and hypnotizing them, publishing those interviews, then that just sounds like you've got work for life. 
it, it kind of is hard to say if Bud Hopkins was someone who genuinely believed all this stuff and then got quite extreme in his views, in his efforts to battle what he saw as a massive cover-up and a crime of epic proportions, or if he was just an opportunist preying upon people who were psychologically vulnerable and maybe even mentally ill just to make a buck and wield power and influence over others. He sure comes across as earnest, so maybe it's the first one. And we can't deny that he did help some people, creating a national network of UFO abductee support groups that give free counseling sessions. But the purpose of those seemed to have been to feed the alien angle more than to try and figure out what was really going on and what actually happened to these people, if anything did. It's his single-mindedness combined with his total lack of scientific or medical knowledge and methodology that is really the real problem with Bud Hopkins. And as I said, he had a pretty lucrative career out of it. And it's very likely that for all the possible good he did some people, and however legitimate his beliefs may have been, he and people like him may also have caused irreparable harm to others. America certainly seems to be an accelerator for all kinds of ideas, and alien abductions is one of them. You can even buy alien abduction insurance from a number of providers like the St. Lawrence Agency, started in Florida in 1987, who offer not only alien abduction insurance, as well as sarcasm insurance for people who are abducted and then have to suffer through sarcasm from their family members, but they also offer asteroid insurance and even reincarnation insurance. Most places, like the St. Lawrence Agency, sell these for pretty cheap and they are considered novelty items. They sell them for like 20 bucks. The alien abduction scene has become widespread and big business thanks to the popularity of the Barney and Betty Hill case and the efforts of people like Bud Hopkins. While abduction tales come from many countries, they really do seem to come mainly out of the English-speaking countries and really especially from the United States. So are Americans just especially prone to emotional and mental disorders? Are they more gullible than other nationalities? Or are they just really fertile soil for uncaring aliens and their eugenics experiments? Maybe the U.S. government has cut a deal with the aliens, allowing them to run amok in the country in exchange for technology? Who knows? The 1960s is when we saw reports really start to increase, and that trend continued into the 70s and beyond. Consider that in 1966, only 7% of Americans believed that UFOs were real and from outer space. By 1986, 20 years later, that was up to 43%. A 2012 National Geographic poll said that 77% of Americans believe aliens have been to Earth, and another poll that same year by YouGov said that 30% of Americans believe that it's true and the government is covering it up. Even in the UK, a 2014 survey showed that 4% of all Britons believe that they have been abducted by aliens at some time in the past. In the United States, abduction reports are actually dropping each year, but sightings are going up. In 2019, in the United States alone, there were 6,340 reported UFO sightings. Incidentally, the state of Idaho had the most sightings and the state of Texas had the fewest because you don't mess with Texas. The only abduction case that might come close to the fame and influence of the Barney and Betty Hill case is that of Whitley Stryber, which he first revealed to the world in his 1985 book, Communion. And then in the 80s and 90s, we saw a massive increase in all things UFO. But that 
will have to be a whole nother episode. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>